The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 321. Premium for Thursday, March 24th, 2011. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where... You ask the questions, we help provide the answers, the rest of the listeners provide the answers, we all share our tips, we all come out of this, including me, learning something new every show here in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. I agree with you, Dave. Uh, I just learned something. Uh, oh, John F. Braun here in Fairfield, Connecticut. Hi, but I, I just learned something from a reply to a reply to a question. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're all learning. Well, it's, a, it's one we're going to cover shortly, but the, the listener wrote back and said, yeah, you, you, you solve the problem. And by the way, here's a better way to do what you suggested to do. So, so we're, we're all learning. Even it's better. Just, it's a wonderful thing. That's cool. That's cool. You know, um, I, don't, I don't mean to jump off the, uh, off the agenda right out of the gate. However, uh, I'm going to. <laughs> so apparently I do. Uh, you know, I'm a TiVo guy, right, John? As oh, are you, I, right? I think we have, we both have the, uh, we, we were both pioneers and got the uh, series three when that's it first right came out that's right so uh which was the first of the hd capable tivo units right so uh recently a listener of ours uh cory offered to uh sell me was looking to sell both he had a, a tivo hd and a tivo premiere which are actually both newer than our series three right the hd came out after the series three and then uh and mm-hmm. then and then the tivo premiere which is essentially series four in, in, you know, kind of TiVo backroom speak. So, and maybe I think it's even printed on it, but anyway, he was selling these for a great deal. And, uh, and so I, uh, I took him off his hands and have now set up a three TiVo household. We had previously, well, we were a one TiVo household, obviously just recently prior, but we were a two TiVo household for a while before we had a lightning strike that turned us into a one TiVo household. <laughs> <clears throat> So I set these things up and I've got them all, uh, you know, plugged in doing the uh, multi-room viewing home networking thing. They're all etherneted in either direct ethernet because I've got that in some of the walls in the house or uh, or power line uh, to to get it elsewhere. Right Now, supposedly, and, if, if something is on one, then you should be able without the, I think you can stream to another one is that the, isn't no. that the kind of the, oh I, no, I thought it's not, that's what multi-room was it's not streaming it's actually copying uh, oh it is you, oh i thought you it can was watch it huh. you can watch it as it's being copied in but uh, but <gasps> oh, it's okay. but it's not streaming it's actually oh, copying right. it from one unit to the other over the network and and yeah it's kind of cool now not every show of course can be copied because some shows uh, are are uh protected and and the the network has decided not or the producers or whoever it is has decided to set the little bit that says, no, you can't copy this from TiVo to TiVo. But, um, but for the most part, most of the primetime shows that we watch, actually, you can do this with. But, uh, but, but some of the kids shows, believe it or not, you can't. Uh, but anyway, huh. uh, the TiVo premiere actually uh, has, has a couple of new things. And, and the one that's, and I know we just finished a cool stuff found show just a couple of days ago, but the one thing that's really cool is there's an iPad app for the TiVo. Now, right now it only works with the TiVo premiere, but the cool thing is I can go through everything on my TiVo. I can go through everything, uh, you know, in, in my listings, I can search for stuff. 
And uh, as soon as I select something, it's playing on my TV, which is pretty cool. I don't have to dig through the menus. If I want to search for something on Netflix, I can do that inside my TiVo remote app on the uh, on the iPad and then pick it. It doesn't have to be in my Netflix, you know, instant streaming queue or anything like that. I just find it. I say play and boom, it's on my TV. Same with Amazon and Blockbuster and all that. And and the best part about it that you'll probably appreciate, John, if you ever have to do this, is I can use the remote to rearrange my season passes, which is something that is a terrible pain to do on the, uh, you know, with the actual remote control. And it's so much easier with the uh, with the iPad app to just rearrange things yeah. and say go and you can do it while you're watching a show. So it's good. It's cool. Yeah, I found the web interface actually does more than I mm-hmm. recall it doing in the past. That's too. right. I think it'll... I think it'll show you a lot of the, you know, what's scheduled. I think you can also set season passes. Yeah, through the web you can well. rearrange season passes through the web and you can set them mm. too. That's right. Nice. Yep. Yep. Nice. All right. Uh, so I, I just, I, I wanted to tell you about that, John, and I figured, uh, I figured no. you folks that have joined That's us cool. uh, would not mind because I know a lot of you are all, TiVo folks too. All I'll say is on TiVo, the thing that I've been using as of late that I really get a kick out of is uh, Pi TiVo. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I've been using that for years. I think you turned it on to me. But yeah, so I get these videos, whether they be uh, most of them are movie trailers, and I'd rather play them on my nice HDTV with the cool sound system than on the computer. Right. And uh, and it takes care of all the nasty transcoding uh, so that it plays on the TiVo. It's well, and if it's an H.264, so what we're talking about is a program that you run called it's called Pi TiVo. We've talked about it before. You run this on your Mac and it takes video files from your Mac and will play them on your TiVo. Uh, Depending on the version of TiVo you have, it it can do them a couple different ways. You can actually stream them uh, or copy them over to the TiVo. I typically, Mm -hmm. at home, we usually stream, uh, was what we were doing to the Series 3, and of course we can do that to the Premiere as well. One cool thing that you may not know, John, is yes, this Pi TiVo will, if necessary, take the file and transcode it on the fly using your max processor to turn it into a format that the TiVo can use. But if it's in H.264, uh, your TiVo will automatically decode it and uh, Pi TiVo need do nothing other than pass it the data, which is pretty cool. sweet. Yeah. All right. All right. Are we ready? Okay. Uh, so I'm now ready. let's answer a question that, uh, that probably most, uh, if not all of us will be asking either now or sometime soon. And that is, Something about Lion. Uh, Pierre writes, I have a Mac Pro 2006 vintage and it will be five years old this October and works very well. My first Mac was a Mac Plus, which I kept for eight and a half years. As you can see, I am from the John F. Braun school of hardware. I use it until it (laughs) wheezes away. Uh he says, I'm considering increasing my RAM on the machine from six to 16 gigs, as well as getting some new hard drives. My thought being that I should be able to squeeze another couple years out of this beast. But before doing so, I want to make sure that it will all be worthwhile, i.e. will my Mac run Mac OS X Lion when it is released later this year? I'm concerned that this might not be the case because of comments made that 2006 iMacs will not be able to move from Snow Leopard to Lion. I seem to recall there were two versions of the iMac released in 2006, so I'm hoping that the iMac comment refers to the earlier model uh, and not the one that was released almost at the same time as my Mac Pro. Then he goes on to describe the machine. 
uh, and says, I did some Google Foo, and there was mention that you had to have a Core 2 Duo processor uh, to be able to move to Lion. This is why I'm concerned that my machine might not be able to do it. Okay, so um, in a general, well, you know, the first thing to say about any discussions that we have about Lion is you got to take it all with a grain of salt because we do not know enough yet. Even if we knew everything about the developer release that you have, that Apple has put out, and if you really, you know, if you're interested, it's a hundred bucks, right? You go, you sign up for the Mac developer program, you pay your $99 and boom, you can download Lion and install it and play with it to your heart's content. But even if you did that and you spent lots of time with it and knew everything about that version, it doesn't matter because Apple has been known uh, and, and rightly so to change things, system requirements, features, functionality between a developer preview and the release. Uh, in fact, the developer preview is, you know, in a general sense, really kind of built to freeze the APIs so that developers can make sure their apps are going to work with it and uh, potentially take advantage of some of the new technologies, at least the ones that Apple has exposed thus far. So whatever we're about to say doesn't matter. However, uh, in a general sense, John, I, I think it's safe to assume that any Mac that can boot Snow Leopard with a 64-bit kernel will run Lion just fine. Uh, in fact, the iMac that I'm on now, as I've mentioned before, uh, won't boot a 64-bit kernel. Uh, but there is some talk about, yeah, maybe it'll boot Lion, you know, when it's released because it's sort of supported, but not really. And uh, and so that that's kind of, you know, this one's on the fence. My guess is it'll come around, but who knows? And then there's a couple knowledge base articles that that talk about how to how to do this, but you can try it with it with holding six, four down, right. When you reboot the machine. Is that right, John? Uh, I don't know because I use a different way of booting both okay. my machines, which both support the 64 bit kernel. Okay. I use a little utility to do this, Dave. Right. We've talked and about I this. like yeah. it, but to mention again, it's 32 bit no, or 64 bit kernel startup mode selector is the inelegant, but totally accurate name. <laughs> Completely descriptive. And not <laughs> but so what sexy. I like about it is yeah so you could try it there's there's no harm in holding down those keys but you know that's kind of unwieldy i mean that's four keys right is it no it's just six four. Oh, okay yeah oh just six four okay two keys all right that's no problem what this does is as far as i can tell because it asks for your admin password it will fiddle it's fiddling with a couple of files deep in the system somewhere i'm not exactly sure which ones but the nice thing about it is that it shows you right in front of you so i'm on the mac mini right now and it'll show you so right now it has four big icons and it says 64-bit processor 64-bit efi which is bios efi is the new bios uh it says 64-bit kernel boot mode which shows that i booted into it on the mini and then 64-bit kernel so, so at a glance, it'll tell you the capabilities of your machine on the left, and okay. that I have a 64-bit processor and a 64-bit EFI. So it'll probably boot in the 64-bit kernel. Though I think you looked at this, Dave, and even though the iMac, those both are 64-bit, it doesn't. Yep. It says 64-bit processor, 64-bit EFI, 64-bit kernel boot mode, uh, which is what is uh, set, but... I'm running a 32 bit kernel and there there's a mm. box in the middle of the screen that has a big uh, green check mark in it that says supported as the title of the box. And in mine, mm. there is the no smoking sign over the check mark. It is not going to happen, at least not on this. Yeah, my mini has a question mark because. Uh, oh, isn't that interesting? I guess officially it's not supposed to, but it does. Um, OK. Or by default, it doesn't boot into it, which I think most machines don't at this point. OK. 
Now he could also, what did he say? Now another thing to, to look at this. So he said he had a, a Mac pro. Is yep. That correct? Yep. That's right. Which one, which one? Uh, well, I'm going to mention 2006. Oh, that's the first one. Okay. Right. right. Oh, all right. So this is another way to find. Yep. All right. 64 bit architecture. Um, how do I know that, Dave? How did you know I'm that? Tell you, I'm going to tell you how I know that. Well, one, I guess you could look in System Profiler. No, I don't even think it's there. No, um, not really. Mac Tracker is just my favorite. And, and we're going to use it, I think, to answer some other questions uh, during the show. But Mac Tracker is this wonderful utility that shows you all sorts of things about all the different Macs. And so I looked up Mac Pro, introduced August 2006, and... It says, yep, it has an Intel Xeon 5100 series, uh, also known as Woodcrest, and it says architecture, 64-bit. So that's a good sign. Okay. And that even though it isn't a core duo, it's a Xeon. Um, it is 64-bit, so my guess would be, well, it doesn't rule it out. It still may right. not. Well, the core duo was a 32-bit processor. Right, right. right the core right. two duo was, it was the first one that was 64-bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So, uh, so yeah, I, I think actually running that 32 or 64 bit startup mode selector utility, uh, is probably the easiest way because it'll tell you what it thinks you can do. You can set it, you can reboot, and then you don't have to dig around in system profiler. You can just launch it after you reboot and see what it says. If on the right, it says 64 bit kernel, then that's what you've done. So, uh, and, and I, and I really do think that, that that's a good benchmark for, uh, in a general sense, whether or not the machine would uh, would run Lion. Now, again, they you know they they, they may make a lot of ch- I don't I don't know I haven't even I haven't installed the developer preview so I I couldn't tell you what it does on this machine or I, anything like that. But uh, but that that's my that would be my guess is uh, is if it'll boot Snow Leopard into a sixty four bit kernel, you're safe. That's my feeling on it. What do, what do you think? I mean, it, you know, the, again, it's kind of an armchair sort of sort of thing but it is what it is mm-hmm. all right mike comes to us with some with some iCal questions so he's got he's got essentially two uh and we'll we'll take them in we'll take them in in kind here john so he uh says he's running snow leopard with the, all the latest updates on an early 2008 mac pro he says if I leave my computer on overnight, the next day, the iCal icon displays the previous day's date. The only way to display the correct date is to reboot the computer. So my guess is that rebooting the computer, John, is, of course, restarting the dock. Uh, and and the dock is what controls what appears in the dock. There's, a, there's an application called dock, and it sits in the background. You don't get to, to mess with it, but... But that's, I think, what's what's going to be controlling this. Um, and I haven't heard back from Mike, but, you know, my first thought is let's confirm that by instead of rebooting, go into activity monitor, find the dock process, highlight it, hit the in the upper left of activity, activity monitor, hit the quit by icon and then just choose to quit the app. Dock will automatically restart. And my guess is when it does, uh, you will get the right date. Assuming that's it. I'm thinking there might be something wrong with like the dock caches maybe. And there are lots of um, those. Do you have another thought? Uh, I have a thought, which is, I don't believe that updates itself. And then I've had, I, I, and, and I'm doing the Google foo right now and I'm seeing numerous people complaining about this. What I have noticed that, no, I've noticed this is that unless you actually start iCal, 
Right. Um, the date will will be the the le- either. Well, I think what I think there are two things that cause it to update. Either rebooting the machine, in which case I think. So, so I'm with you. Is that there, there's something? I think you either need to restart the dock process or run iCal, and the date will be accurate. But I don't think it's. I mean, it, it, to me, it was always eye candy. I certainly don't rely on the iCal icon I, to be correct. I think since Leopard iCal's icon oh, in the dock has right. always reflected the current date. Because I because I remember that was something that people were asking BusyCal to do, and they were saying, "Yeah, look, Apple's using a funny you know API to do that that doesn't really exist. It'll be much easier when Snow Leopard's out because now BusyCal does the same thing, and the BusyCal icon is always the you know the current day." Hmm. Um, but may, you may be right. I don't have iCal in my dock, so I, I couldn't I couldn't tell you. No, I do, and and I'll notice sometimes it's it's off by a day or so. I mean, hmm. I typically launch it. All right, so maybe this isn't a problem that can be fixed. You know, maybe it's not a clean the caches and hope it gets better kind of thing. Huh? I don't think so. Again, if you uh, Google for iCal doc icon date, there's a lot of people shaking their fist over this. Interesting. All right. Okay, well, that's so. Okay, well, that's good discussion. Uh, Number two, he says, I updated to the new iCal in mobile me. And he says it was a disaster. He says, my computer's iCal now shows three libraries on my Mac, which contains a calendar called Calendar, which doesn't have much in it, and and username at me.com, which contains home, work, house, and a calendar called Volunteer, and then a group called Subscriptions, which has birthdays in it. When I first synced my iPhone 4 after upgrading to the new mobile me, it created an appointment every day, uh, a repeating what appears to be a repetitive appointment every day on my iPhone calendar uh, called volunteer. These appointments are not in my volunteer calendar on the computer, nor in the calendar on me.com. Is there a way to delete these appointments? Again, they are only on the iPhone. Okay. So what you're seeing in your list where you have on my Mac, your username at me.com account and subscriptions, that's normal. Uh, username at me.com is the connection to the new CalDAV server. See, previously what would happen is iCal would actually sync with sync services on the Mac and then sync services would sync to mobile me. Uh, so it would take everything in the on my Mac section of iCal and sync that out. When you convert over to the new calendar, uh, everything should be cleared out of the on my Mac section because it's go- iCal now syncs directly with the mobile me CalDAV server. So, um, so I'm not sure why that other calendar is there. Maybe it's something you created or, uh, or maybe it, maybe it's a holdover and there was a problem in the conversion. Is there a way to delete? All right. So he yeah, has, you can delete a calendar. Uh, no, I, under, I understand. Oh. But what, what's confusing me here. So now that I have my iPhone four. Yes. Uh, what I'm curious about, Dave, is that so I have a bunch of events that are on different calendars. Uh, OK, Google Calendar. You and I share a Google Calendar. Right. And a few others. But the thing I notice is that if I click on any item in iCal on the iPhone and then hit edit. Yes. One of the categories is calendar. And I'm wondering which calendar that mysterious event thinks it's part of. Huh. Uh, now you okay. have to hit edit. Normally, if you, if you if if there's an event on the iPhone, at least on mine, yeah, it doesn't normally show which calendar it belongs to. You, you got to hit yep, edit, but then it'll edit, show it. And then you go to calendar. Okay, well, where does calendar fall? Because you're going to see if you go if you follow that step, find an event on the iCal calendar, click it, hit edit, uh, and then tap calendar. I'm sorry, on the this is on the iPhone, and then you tap calendar. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
it, it shows you your groups, right? So you've named, you know, I've had my Google calendar named one thing and my mobile me calendar named another. Where does quote unquote calendar fall? Is it outside of those groups? Is it, is it at the top? You get what I'm saying there? Calendar. Right. So you, do you see the groups? You probably have two. Yeah. 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 yeah okay. I home. I got Macika. No, 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 no. No. Do you see? But there. But all of those are in like one Google Calendar group, right? And then you've got another group that's all your your mobile me stuff. Mm-hmm. So where does the term "quote unquote" calendar? Right. Are, are you? You follow me here? What I was talking about is clicking on an event and hitting edit. There is a category called calendar, oh, which lists. Oh, I thought you calendar. were saying you had a calendar no. called calendar. No, 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 no. Oh, no. okay. Okay, I'm sorry because there's multiple references. There's both a list of calendars within iCal on the iPhone, and then right. what I'm saying is every event, from what I can see, has when you hit the edit button, a calendar category, and that will list which calendar that event belongs Correct. to. Correct. Okay, and that's right, what he's saying is that this this uh, repetitive event is on his calendar named volunteer, which is one of the ones that's on the oh, right. uh, on the mobile me server. But but the issue is that he's got all these events on his iPhone in that calendar, and they're not in that same calendar on mobile me when he checks on the web or oh, no. on the computer. So my mm. my feeling here is that things are out of sync and corrupt, probably yep. mostly on the iPhone, but unfortunately we don't have the option. Well, there's, I guess there's two ways to do this. Number one would be to go into your iPhone uh, into the settings, go into mail contacts and calendars and, and just remove your mobile me account or, or go into your mobile me account and turn calendars off. Right. And it'll tell you, I'm going to delete stuff from your device. You say, yeah, please do. And let it go through that and then turn calendars back on. In theory, if the corruption was only on your iPhone, when it resyncs all your calendars back down, it's going to work and you're not going to see that duplicate event. So that, that would actually be mm. kind of the simple way. If that doesn't work, what I would do and, and I've done this for other various reasons, and it's not that bad. But uh, what I would do is delete the calendar and recreate it. Now, of course, you want to repopulate it with the correct data. So the way I would do it is in iCal, I'd go to the file menu, choose export, and choose iCal archive. Now, that's going to save a backup of everything in iCal, and that's just for good measure. Uh, number two uh, highlight this calendar that you want to kind of rebuild. So in, in Mike's case, volunteer is the name of it. Then go to file export and then export. And that will let you save uh, an ICS, a dot ICS file of just that calendar. Save that somewhere where you can find it. Maybe just to your desktop, then right click or control click on the calendar called volunteer inside iCal and choose delete. That's going to remove it from the computer. And then also it's going to go out to mobile me and remove it. Once you've done that, let's create a new calendar uh, in the mobile me section. So we'll go to file new calendar and choose your, you know, username at mobile me and call it something else. We can rename it back to volunteer later, but for now call it, you know, volunteer new or something so that we're not confused when we're seeing it in various places. We know this is the new one. Uh, then uh, go to file, import, import, and choose that ICS file that you created earlier and tell it you want to put it 
in this, you know, volunteer new or whatever calendar it is. Uh, that's going to suck all that data in and then it'll upload it to, uh, you know, sync it up to the mobile me Caldav thing, which hopefully then will sync back down to your iPhone and hopefully the world will be a okay. So that that's if there was corruption throughout the, the process. But if, if it was just on the iPhone, then that first step of just taking the calendars off and putting them back on should, should work. Thoughts on that, John? I think what you said is about as good as it's going to get. I, I found that some, no, I've just found sometimes there's just something that's stuck on one calendar yep. and you got to start backing off gradually to try to, I've had more of a problem getting things to show up in multiple places and that, you know, I'll add it on the iPhone and I'm like, all right, you synced with the cloud. Where is it on the computer? Huh? Or the other way around. Really? And sometimes I actually have to force a, uh, well, I have it set on the computer to automatically sync. Okay. And I see it working because I'm running hardware growler, which will show sync attempts among other things. Really? That's even though I see cool. it sync. You're talking about even, s- over the air syncing it shows? Well, it shows any sync event. Yeah. Really? Well, huh. it's it's when I'm hooked up. Yeah. When I have a machine that is, yeah, that, that's doing a sync event. Huh. And I have... And I have MobileMe sync set to automatic. Which whoa, 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 whoa. Theory, no, no, no. You're very, you're confused. MobileMe sync in the MobileMe system preference pane has mm-hmm. nothing to do with the calendar anymore. iCal syncs directly to the MobileMe server. And you could turn off MobileMe sync inside system preferences, but iCal is still going to sync with that CalDAV server. It, oh, it, they, the right. two are completely separate now. Yeah, I it, sync services is no longer involved. iCal I, essentially what's happened is that iCal is just a CalDAV client in in this uh, scenario. Okay, yeah, because it's still in my mobile control pan, uh, system preference. Uh, yeah, well, you could you could turn calendars on. In fact, you should turn them off uh, because what that will do is that will sync anything that's listed on my Mac. It'll sync with the old mobile me calendar that you know that, that lives out uh, right. in sync services land so yeah there's no reason to have that on that's right hmm. oh okay yeah. yeah good to know yeah yeah it's yeah it's it's interesting it, and and confusing it should it, it yeah it is. should be more clear about that yeah <laughs> okay i'll have to uh, i'll have to tweak that yeah all right uh james writes hey guys Like John, I decided to purchase Aperture from the new Mac App Store so that I could combine and manage multiple old iPhoto libraries. As an aside, I find the application slower than I imagined, and I'm running a new 27-inch iMac i5. I thought that when I began importing libraries into Aperture, I selected Do Not Import Duplicates. However, I have tons of duplicates, sometimes four or five of the same shot. Like John, I have a huge collection of photos, and it would be very difficult to delete duplicates by hand. I'm amazed that Aperture does not have a mechanism built in to delete them. When I Googled the problem, there seemed to be several applications designed to eliminate duplicates, some of which, of course, we've talked about here on the show. But before I go out and purchase another application to clean up the application I just purchased, I thought I would ask you guys if you have any other experiences. So, so we have, John, right? We've talked about this a couple times. But, uh, but what's your, what are your thoughts for James? So what are my thoughts? So he's talking about the speed. And I noticed this when I was doing some photo edits on, on my MacBook Pro. Yeah. Things were getting kind of sluggish. I'm like, oh, that's really weird. You know, I mean, I got, you know, I got the faster mechanical hard drive. I got the six gigs of RAM. Right. Uh, Aperture typically takes about a gig. And so, you know, I click on the on the menu, uh, iStat menu. And uh, 
Well, not only is Aperture taking up a gig, guess who else is taking a gig? Safari. Yes. I'm like, what? What are you taking a gigabyte for? What are you doing? I have a single web page displayed. Yeah. I don't think that takes a gigabyte. So what happened is machines, my machine started paging out and swapping. Oh. So um, keep an eye, uh, because Aperture, uh, again, does probably is going to take at least a gigabyte. Keep okay. an eye on your swap and your page outs to make sure that's not happening. Otherwise, yeah, it's, it's going to. Oh, uh, on the very, other hand, it, on the other hand, it is a more powerful program, and you're, because it does a lot more sophisticated functionality than iPhoto. Yeah, it it may not be as snappy. Well, I found going through libraries, it's definitely a lot snappier. But applying effects and some other things. Anyways, okay, to so, the no, question, so that that's interesting. That that in fact that that's good advice. If you're if you're running a big program like that, uh, do quit anything that you have that you don't need at that point in time. Yes, Mac OS X is great. It has virtual memory. Uh, it can, you know, grow far beyond the limitations of your system and all that good stuff. But you're going to pay for it in speed. So so that that's that's actually a really good a really good point. All right. So, John, we, and we've talked about this before. In fact, I think we talked about it just what two shows ago. So but I'm going to go into more detail. Your fate. Oh, OK. Your favorite. Uh, yeah. Your favorite uh, way of 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 tidying these these things up to, to lead you in, into your next thing. Well, is a utility, which I had not looked at for a while. So, so I decided to look at my library, which has about 27,000 photos. Okay. And I'm like, eh, you know, as, as far as I know, yeah, I photo identified the, the duplicates. So when I did the import, I didn't expect there to be any. Right. And I think even when you do the import, like, like, uh, like uh, James said, it, it should come up and say, yeah, do you, do you want to eliminate duplicates? Right. Because sometimes it's pretty obvious. But I ran tidy up and I had about 60 duplicates. Right. So, so tidy up, full disclosure, I got it in a, in a, a speaker bag or something. So, um, and it was, I just had it installed, but never really found a need to use it until now. So it identified about 60 duplicates, but then here's where I work backwards. So I didn't know if I entirely trusted it to get rid of them, though it, it certainly offered to do that. I wanted to look into Aperture and find out. That tidy you know up was, was on your cool stuff found list, right? Earlier this week. Oh, absolutely. Because yeah, okay. it did okay. do a very nice job but okay. because I think it's, it's not only good for Aperture, but iPhoto, um, iTunes, and I believe some other. Right. Uh, or just duplicate files in general based on a number of criteria. And, you know, I think it's 30 bucks now. It used to be more. And, and if you have a problem, especially if you have files spread out on, on different drives, because I know some people have multiple external drives, and I think this is really when you get into this problem. Okay. Uh, not so much, I think, when you have a single machine right. or a single hard drive. You certainly could. So then I worked my way backwards. So it identified a whole bunch of photos, and indeed there were duplicates. And here's how I eventually found them within Aperture. Okay. So Aperture has a number of views. So what I did is I went into the viewer. There's a little icon you click on where it says viewer. I'm sorry, you click on photos, then you click on browser, and then you select the list view, which you'll see, you know, it looks like a list, you know, a bunch of lines. And then there's a number of columns you can sort on. So what I clicked on eventually uh, when I found one of these duplicates is I noticed that in the badges, and I'm not quite sure what badges are yet, but if I sorted on badges, what would happen is all the photos that were identified as duplicates would be in the same area. And it showed one of the photos and then one of those little triangles and the other photo with the exact same name within my library. So one suggestion I had for him is, you know, go through the steps that I described here, sort on badges and see if duplicate photos show up. That may be an easy way to do it within Aperture itself. Okay, so uh, so badges 
in Aperture, and I'm I'm not an Aperture guy, but I, I did a little searching in the Aperture user manual here. Mm-hmm. And and so badges, uh, it, what it says here is when you apply adjustments, keywords, or other changes to an image. So when you make modifications to an image, mm-hmm. Aperture marks the image with a corresponding badge overlay. Uh, and they say, you know, badges appear in, in all these lists. And and so there's there's a jillion different badges. And I say a jillion. There's probably 20. But but there's there's a badge for uh, different adjustments, it, either one or more adjustments. Uh, and, and the badge actually changes. There's a different badge for keywords. There's a different badge if uh, an image would, was edited with an external editor and then brought back in. Right? And that's the badge that I saw. Okay. So at some point, I may have, within iPhoto, done an external edit. Interesting. Okay, so that's good research on badges. So, so this may not solve the problem. I, I think tidy up, uh, well, as, as he suspected, I think that's going to be the best way to do this. Now, I find it kind of an infuriating lack of a feature that is in iPhoto, because I can't think of a reason why you'd want to import multiple copies of the same photo. Or that there's not a script or, or maybe there is a script. I just haven't figured out how to write it yet. No, but this. it would make but, sense that iPhoto would change. It would, would take the original copy of the image and save that, uh, you know, somewhere else. I mean, that iPhoto library has tons of dupes in it. And, mm. and I guess, yeah, when you import from Aperture, it's pulling both of those in. That's interesting. Okay. And it showed it in the uh, icon view as well. So if, if uh, going from the list view to the icon view, what happened is any photo I have where there was more than one copy, it would show them next to each other and then put a little two saying, uh, you got two of these, dude. Oh. So I sent him screenshots sh- of that. So hopefully, um, I don't know if we've heard back yet, but hopefully one or the other of those may work within Aperture. Otherwise, I think tidy up is, is the way to do it. I believe they have a trial and it's 30 bucks. So, okay. um, Try that. The, the other one, though, it's not really specific to Aperture, is another one, which wasn't the cool stuff found, but I'll mention quickly. It's called Dupe Guru. Right. It was able to find the duplicates as well. Okay. Uh, though it also found a whole bunch of other files that were duplicated. That, uh, so you, you want to be careful with Dupe Guru because okay. it, it's not really Aperture savvy in that it would show multiple copies of thumbnails and preview icons and stuff like that, which I don't think you want to get rid of, but it did also find the duplicate photos. So, and that is uh, something that's fairware. So you can try it. It's fully functional and you can send them some money if it helps you out. So now now we know, now now we know why those two were included in your cool stuff found this week. Yeah, because it, it helped me, uh, you know, it helped me uh, purge a big 60 photos out of my 27,000. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I just saved a lot of this It was almost not even worth the time we spent discussing it, let alone the time you spent doing it, right? But, you know, but for the sake of geekiness, it's totally worth it. And just OCD. Now I I know I have no duplicate photos in my my library. That's actually. Even though it was 0.00 whatever percent. That's, and that's the real value right there. Yes. Yes. (laughs) All right. uh, Pierre, and I believe it is the same Pierre uh, that we, that uh, helped us start off the show. But uh, Pierre writes back and says, I run Onyx on a fairly regular basis every six to eight weeks. And typically it indicates that I have an error on my disc. And what he's talking about is when you start up the Onyx utility, it scans your disc first before you can then, or it offers to scan your disc first and do a disc verification uh, before you can do anything else. Uh, He says, I then dutifully run disc repair from within the utility and always get the following indications after the repair is done. It says invalid volume file count 
an invalid volume directory count. Now, this is after running, he says, a repair in disk utility, but I don't believe him, and I'll, I'll explain why. So uh, he says, the disk in question, almost five years old, uh, has been going on, uh, this problem's been going on for a year or so. I'm wondering why the disk would always return the same error. Does it mean uh, anything, and should I be worried? I have my system backed up with Time Machine and cloned with SuperDuper. Okay, so... Absolutely. This is a problem. And and I, I feel like you've been misled by uh, Onyx and perhaps disk utility because you cannot repair a disk when you're booted from that disk. And I'll leave a little asterisk there. But but in a general sense, you can't because there's a bunch of files open on it and it just doesn't work. So when Onyx finds a problem and launches disk utility all disk utility is doing is running a verify on the disk. It cannot run a repair if it's the disk that you've booted from. So you either need to boot from your Snow Leopard DVD uh, or Leopard DVD or whatever it is that's going to boot that machine and run disk repair from disk utility there because that's going to be running from a separate disk or hold down command S uh, when you reboot your machine and that'll bring you into single user mode. It looks scary, but you can do this because Apple leaves you the instructions right there. Uh, it, there's there's instructions on how to uh, run the FSCK command by typing some terminal uh, commands in. It's in fact, it's just one line of terminal commands, and it's a pretty short one at that. And then it will continue to run FSCK until it has fixed all of its problems. So that that's uh that that's the, that's the way to do it. If you don't have another disc to boot from uh, what happens in single user mode is it stops it early enough in the boot process that it can still modify the disc. Um, that's a, that, in a nutshell. That's what it is. Or install Applejack and Applejack will take care of all that for you in single user mode. Highly recommend it. It's free. Install it now before problems hit. We'll put a link in the show notes. Applejack.sourceforge.net. But I think I think he needs to fix that problem because th those kinds of things, those those directory errors and file counts, man, that's the kind of thing that will, you know, get bad and worse over time. And then then suddenly you can't boot your machine. Yeah. I have another suggestion. Go. Our pal Drive Genius has another option. So Drive Genius also has a rebuild option, Dave, which just, I think just maybe like Disc Warrior. Right. So I, yeah, I think I'm with you is that it sounds like it's damaged to the point where it cannot be repaired by the built-in Apple utilities. No, or no, 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 utility? no, no, he has not tried to repair it with the Apple utility. Were you doing something else again, John? Did I catch you not paying attention? No, it wasn't clear to me whether he, uh, he has not, I don't it. know if the word isn't rebooted yet. I understand. No, I, I totally understand what you said. No, yeah. I was not doing something different. It wasn't clear to me if he was doing no i thought i thought he was running the the repair not just the verify well it wasn't clear to me from the wording if he, he uh yeah he couldn't be because we know he can't because onyx is just launching disk utility and disk utility won't let you run repair on your on your boot disk Un right unless, i'm not right. sure if this was being done from a different disk or not i'm going to assume as you did that that he's right. doing it from the same disk in which case no i agree with you yeah um but and yeah, even disk, even drive genius yeah. or or disk warrior uh, those both you need to boot from uh, yes, their DVDs correct. or or what have you. Yeah, correct. Because I actually did this recently where I, I was having some trouble with my MacBook. Yep. 
And the repair said, yeah, I think everything's cool. But the rebuild actually found some deeper problems. It's it said, no, 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 no. There's, there's a little discrepancy here that the other operation didn't catch. So I'm going to rebuild. So, so I think what it does is it basically scours the files and it, it rebuilds these directory structures that uh, are otherwise somewhat damaged. Yep. Uh, I would say, and, and he's got backups and I'm hoping yeah. all of you oh, do yeah. too, but you know, certain, certainly it's, a, it's good advice before you repair a directory, but definitely if you're going to rebuild the directory, you know, oh, remember yeah. what you're doing is you're taking the, you know, the, the pointers to where all of your files live and without those pointers, your files are basically gone. Right. Uh, basically, but, uh, you know, you're reorganizing all of those pointers. And if something happens during that process, it's over. Oh, you're so, toast. You're toast. <laughs> yeah. So you want to make sure you have a backup of at least everything you're able to back up before you do that rebuild, just in case. Because I've seen it where, you know, a utility like this. Now, it's been a long time, but it was Norton Utilities back in the day. And it was on a, mm-hmm. you know, like a Mac. I want to say like a two CI or something like that, where I saw Norton utilities, you know, we went to run it just as a matter of course on uh, on a client's machine. And suddenly all the files were gone. I was like, Oh, you gotta be kidding me. What happened? What happened? But thankfully in those days, Norton stored an old copy of the directory it would save it to the disc before you uh, rebuilt. And so we said, no, put this back and put it back and got everything backed it up, reformatted, you know? So that memory has stuck with me because that was a panic point. It was actually our, our attorney's computer who was also a client of ours. So and he's, and he's still our, he's still my attorney today with, with this business. So oh, good, good. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, so that was uh, what to do if your disc has uh, software problems, I'll call them. Now we're going on to a different type of disc problem. Gavin writes, I have a previous version Mac mini and I'm having an issue with my super drive. I have recently been backing up all my DVDs and importing my CDs into iTunes. So it's been getting a lot more work than it has in the past. Recently have an issue where a CD would not eject. I tried the following holding down the left mouse button while booting, holding down the right mouse button while booting using the disk util command in the terminal to eject it. Uh, I've also taken the top. I have now taken the top off and manually removed the disc, but that can cause other issues. When I tried to eject the disc, it's making the right kind of noises, but it seems the gate that comes up when you add a disc to stop you from putting another disc in will not release to allow the disc out. Have you heard of this or do you know another way around it? I'm resigned to the fact that the SuperDrive may be shot and will more than likely need replacing is an external DVD an option uh and can you recommend particular make models of external dvds okay so lots of questions so uh everything you did except holding the right mouse button down i don't think that would have helped but uh, everything else that you did from from a software standpoint is the right thing holding down the uh the left mouse button there's a terminal command you can use called disk util to eject it uh i'm sure there's others john what what uh but but they all basically do the same thing what do you have any others i'm trying to I thought mention. there was one you could do through the EFI, but that's kind of obscure. But no, I think all the other ones will. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think between holding down the mouse button and disutility, neither of those, because they're both, I think, doing the same thing. They're right. basically hitting a, a line on the drive that says, right, spit it out. Right. 
That's right. And it sounds like those commands were working because the drive was, as you said, making all the right kinds of noises, right? So, or as, as, as uh, Gavin said, right? So I, I, you were doing all the right things, Gavin. It's just that the disc didn't want to come out. Now there's one of two reasons for that. One, the drive's messed up. Two, the disc is messed up. And I've seen this uh, in the past a few times. And it's always been the disc, you know, it's just a little bit warped or whatever. And there's a very thin tolerance on those, on those uh, slot loader drives. So, uh, so have you done this before where you take a credit card, John, and you work the credit card? It, not only do you work it into the slot, but you work it in and underneath the disc. Cause what's going to happen is the disc when you put the disc in, it slides in and drops down just, just a little bit. And, and so what I've done is I take a credit card and I slide it in the slot and I get it under the disc and then I do whatever I need to do, you know, type the terminal command or whatever arcane, you know, keystroke is required to get it to, as Gavin says, make all the right kinds of noises. And when it does that, I, I uh-huh. kind of pop it with the credit card and it usually slides right out. Have you, have I've you heard that? of some? No, okay. the, the, I was recently talking to uh, or, or tweeting. Yes. With someone I follow and. And he actually tried, he, he found the same tip is jamming something in there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Could help. It actually kind of surprised me and kind of makes me nervous, you know, sticking something else in there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and it should make <laughs> but, you nervous. Absolutely. You could, you could really ruin everything doing this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Um, all right. Let, you know, let's, let's, um, let's jump around a little bit. We got, we got three questions this week about SSDs and not, not even just random kind of across the board questions about SSDs. These were actually two questions and one tip uh, Mm. about SSDs cost and how to balance the two. So we'll, we'll start with Mark and uh, and I think Gary has actually an answer for Mark and we'll pull up Paul's question and, and see how we go. So Mark writes, I have an early 2008 uh, non-Unibody MacBook Pro fully updated with a 500 gigabyte 7200 RPM drive. I'm considering installing an SSD, but an equivalent one at 500 gigs would cost me 1500 bucks. So I have a few options. Number one is install one 500 gigabyte SSD for 1500 or install one 500 gigabyte hybrid drive at a $50 premium over a regular drive for intermediate performance. Or number three, remove the internal DVD drive, install one 60 gigabyte SSD from OWC for 150 bucks using their OptiBay for 100 bucks. And uh, then I can leave the original mechanical drive in, then I can reinstall the OS on the SSD and use the mechanical drive as the document and image storage. So, my questions and some more facts. My total uh, system apps and library takes up 23 gigabytes. Uh, if you really wanted to torture yourself, uh, or if, if he wanted to really torture himself, he could do number three, but the me- replace the mechanical drive with another hybrid drive at a total cost still less. Uh, would that work better? Okay, so, and then he goes on. His, uh, his next real question uh, is... What are the ramifications of partitioning both uh, drives as one partition versus creating two separate partitions? Meaning he's going to have, so he's talking about the solution where he's got the regular hard drive that's in there now and then replacing the DVD drive with a bay and OWC, as he said, sells this Opti bay 
that you can then put a drive in and you can put an SSD or a regular drive in there and have essentially two hard drives in your machine while foregoing the um, optical drive. Right, John? So he's asking if he should partition them both together versus creating two separate partitions. And then also can one after installing the OS on the SSD remap the documents folder to the mechanical drive such that migration assistant would correctly put the data in the proper location or is there something else that needs to be done? So uh, I think Gary answers a lot of his question, but do you, do you have anything to, uh, to add here, John, or should, should I read Gary's, Gary's answer, even though Gary didn't know he well, was answering Mark's question, then we'll kind of talk about it all. Well, the only thing that I want to address is Mark's question, because that is an interesting question about the bus speed. Uh, okay, yeah. So he had a question about the bus speed, which was, um, is the bus speed from the old DVD slot the same as the old mechanical drive slot? This might have ramifications as to wh where one would put the SSD. And I just found the answer. Okay, so what's the so, answer? Dave, you and I have a golden oldie, the early 2008. Just like, just Pro. like Mark does, right? Well, no, I think he, I think he no, has same one. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, then the answer, at least according to Mac Tracker, is that the hard drive bus is a 1.5 gigabit per second SATA. The optical drive bus, as I saw when I looked in System Profiler, is an Ultra ATA 100 running at UATA 66. Oh, that's slow. So, really. Well, that's well, so. So I, I assume that's sixty-six mega megabits per second max, and it's a different connector because I've been in the machine a few times before. So to answer the question for that machine, which is the same that you and I have, Dave, the optical drive bus is definitely slower than the SATA bus. Now, of course, the late two thousand eight machine, all of the buses are SATA. So, oh. so something to keep in mind for owners of the early two thousand eight machine, like you and I, is that. Yeah, that bus is slower. Huh. I'm glad you didn't let me skip that part of his question because that's uh, that has that that has big implications. Yeah, because I was wondering about that. I, I didn't see it on the well. The first thing is I went to system profiler and I didn't see my optical drive on the SATA bus like the hard drive. And I'm like, OK, what type of bus is it on? Right. <laughs> and uh, and Mac tracker to the rescue and it answered the question. How so, did you? Oh, so uh, so system profiler isn't showing this to you. Oh, no. Well, no, it is. Well, if you look in System Profiler under the optical drive category, it lists the bus. And it uses a different acronym. Oh, right. What does it use? Do I have uh, ATA. Uh, my notes here? ATAPI. Right. Which, yeah, ATA is a different, right. not necessarily slower, but it can be. Uh, and in this case, it is. <laughs> yeah. Than, than the SATA bus. So. Huh. Very interesting. Yeah. Okay. So thought I'd address that and, and again, sing the praises of, uh, of our pal, uh, Mac tracker to get all this. Uh, yeah, that's go. great. Gosh. Yeah. That's good stuff. All right. So, uh, Gary wrote to us, uh, with a little tip for everyone that he titled SSD on the cheap. So I, I, I just thought it was very serendipitous that, uh, that we got this email from Mark and then we got this email from Gary. So Gary writes, uh, I have a late 2008 aluminum unibody MacBook. Uh, 
Uh, it is pretty plain Jane, 10.6.6, 2.4 gigahertz core, two duo, four gigs of RAM, 500 gig hard drive. Yeah. Uh, I've been wanting something more and really lusting after an SSD, but they are just prohibitively expensive for the sizes I need. So I did some research on how to get SSD performance on the cheap. I looked at hydro, hybrid drives and found that uh, they may not be what I wanted. I want more. And I found it at OWC using this OptiBay or data doubler device that allows you to mount a two and a half inch drive in place of the optical drive in an aluminum MacBook or MacBook Pro. So I bought the kit from OWC with 120 gig Mercury Extreme Pro for 279. I also bought an OWC Value Line Slim USB enclosure kit for my removed optical drive for 28 bucks. So for about 300 bucks, I removed the super drive from the MacBook, inserted the new SSD into its place, and then put the super drive in this external enclosure. So I have access to everything, but uh, my external drive is, or my super drive is now external. Then using carbon copy cloner, I moved my entire Macintosh hard drive contents minus uh, my large iPhoto, iTunes and iMovie libraries over to the SSD. I left those other libraries on the 500 gig mechanical drive. I pointed iPhoto and iTunes to their libraries on my spinning drive. iMovie seems to see content on all attached drives, so I did not have to configure it except moving the tiny iMovie projects folder to the SSD. The SSD now contains all of OS 10, two user accounts, and parallels with Windows 7. This consumes only half of the SSD's capacity. Performance-wise, it smokes. I left the spinning drive version of OS 10 intact for benchmarking the two identical systems and found that the SSD system took about 40% of the time it takes the spinning drive to do most tasks, such as restart, start Safari, start Word, start Windows 7. Cost about 300 bucks and a little bit of time. SSD on the cheap for my now hot rod MacBook. So, so that's good success, Gary, uh, with, or Mark, uh, Gary has had good success with this whole data doubler kind of thing. Uh, I think for your computer, it's called the OptiBay for his, it's called the data doubler because he's got the aluminum uh, MacBook versus your older MacBook pro. But, uh, but yeah, so so that it's certainly doable with with yours, Mark, you're, you're looking at getting an even smaller SSD. You're looking at a 60 gig and you wanted to know if you could keep the documents folder on the mechanical drive. So you can um, and I think you would do it with an alias uh, is probably the easiest way. But I, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that, John? I'm gonna have to try it because I, I do have. Uh, mm. I use it on occasion. I have a one of those 48 uh, gig uh, Express Card yep, deals. Right, right. I haven't. Um, I'm with you. I, I think doing doing an alias should be okay in most cases because I think a lot of things assume that the Documents folder is in the same place as the the rest of the system. Right. So. Right. No, I think yeah. I think so. Having alias. it totally separate, I think, is not a good. I think a lot of things are going to get upset. But yeah, if the alias is there, then I think you're cool. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, or shortcut, it's, are we it's, saying a shortcut or, or a symbolic link? Uh, I'm saying a, a, a Mac OS 10 created alias. Yeah. Which, which might work or might not. I mean, it, both the drives will always be mounted, right? Because they are hardwired into the machine. So you don't have to worry about it going. Oh, I'm sorry. Way. Make alias. You're correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. From the file menu. Yeah. Got it. So the, uh, the, 
the the other thing to consider is if your SSD drive, which is going to be booting your machine and launching your applications, is too small to house your entire user folder, you can move the user folder from uh, your boot drive over to another drive. Or uh, in in Mark's case, you could install Mac OS X, you know, put this uh, SSD in the OptiBay, install a fresh copy of Mac OS X there, uh, and then create a user account with the same short username as the one on the other. So if your short username is Mark on, on your original drive, make it Mark. And then you can point your new user on the SSD to the home directory that you previously had on the, uh, on the mechanical drive that's in the computer. And it's actually, it's actually pretty straightforward to do this. Just be careful with what you're doing. You would boot from the SSD into this account. You go into accounts. Uh, you may have to click the little lock to let it let you make changes. And then right click on your account in the list and choose advanced options. And don't change anything here other than the line that says home directory. Click the little choose button next to that. Navigate to the previous home directory you had on the mechanical drive and hit okay. I, I think at this point it would be a good idea to reboot. The the OS may tell you you have to anyway, but even if it doesn't, tell it to. Uh, and then uh, and then you should be good to go. And there are a lot of people running that way uh, very happily these days. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's that's the uh, that's my story. So that's that's uh, two out of three on SSD on the cheap. And then we got a question from Paul, and Paul says. Uh, he's got, uh, he says, I have a uh, late 2008 MacBook Pro unibody. Uh, we, in fact, so I think we've got every laptop released in 2008, right? We've got the early 2008 Mac, MacBook Pro from Mark, the late 2008 MacBook from Gary, and now the uh, late 2008 MacBook Pro. Uh, he says, I've already upgraded with a 7200 500 gig drive. Okay, so consistent, check. And maxed out the RAM, consistent, check. So that's about as fast as thing can get with the old-fashioned hard drive. I haven't got the funds to go full SSD route and have been contemplating the hybrid route. But on investigation, people seem to be having some problems after a few months, particularly with video playback and a degradation of the speed they're getting from the drive. That's interesting. I had not heard that. I have... be. Make sure you check the firmware on those. Okay. I have heard of issues... That, that firmware updates will fix on, on the, uh, the hybrids. Yep. Yep. So, uh, so he, that, that's, that, that's, that's interesting. Um, let's, and, and you, you have not gotten the Seagate momentous or you haven't started testing it yet, John. Is that not yet? I'm, I'm clearing out some, uh, old okay. equipment, but you've got it to um, test. Yeah. No. Oh, okay. Well, we got to, well, sure they, we... they got in touch with me okay, and I think good. they want, I think they want to toss me one, but, uh, good. I got two dry reviews that I got to get out before I, I'm just a little disciplined. No, I have two that are, <laughs> that are ready to release, but I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't want to get yet another drive because mm-hmm. then I'll start playing with that instead of finishing my reviews. Of so. course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> All right. So, uh, so then he talks about what you're talking about, John, with the, uh, the express card SSD slot, a 48 gig, uh, version, and use that for just the OS and applications. And that's totally doable. In fact, I think that's probably something Mark could consider doing as well. Um, but, uh, you know, as we discussed, and then you just do what I said and move your system preference pane over. 
He says, uh, my app folder is currently 16 gigs, so I'm guessing that 48 gig would be enough room for the OS apps and perhaps a little wriggle room to allow the OS to puff up its chest. I also believe that when I'm out and mobile with such a system, I could always revert back to using the OS on my existing drive if there were a problem with the SSD express card taking more power. Uh, just wondered if you had any experience with this. I, I set, I, I put a boot version of OS 10 on that express card. Um, in fact, I used that then to, uh, turn my daughter's Dell machine into a Hackintosh because it's a great little portable mm-hmm. USB drive, uh, as well. The, um, the, what is the WinTech 48 gig drive? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it works in the express card slot or as a standalone USB drive. So it, it's actually a handy little thing. We can put a link to them, but I think they're pretty cheap. Um, I haven't looked at prices in a little bit, John. Do you know prices on? No. I think they're about 100, 130 bucks. I think is about right. 150 maybe. So it's not it's not bad. Uh, so those are our three SSD. And then we had a couple of uh, of RAM questions, John. So let's uh, let's go to Tom. Yeah, let's here. go. Let's get those out of the way. Yeah. And Tom says, I've read a few people's opinions that the memory in a machine should only be upgraded using Apple memory to ensure complete compatibility. Do you agree with this? And if not, who are some suppliers that you would use and recommend? I was looking to upgrade the memory from four gig to eight gig in my iMac. I looked at OWC and Crucial, wasn't sure about them or if you like another company. Okay, so uh, so we, we have this discussion a lot, but this is this is actually a new question. Uh, about you know why why are people thinking that Apple only RAM is the only way to go and are they right? Can I go? Mm-hmm. You gonna let me loose? Mm-hmm. I violently disagree with this position. <laughs> <laughs> me too. And I'm gonna tell you why, Dave. Because Good. Apple doesn't make memory. <laughs> That's an excellent point. What they do, if you look at the memory. They use just like every other. Now, I don't even think at any point Apple did make their own memory. Maybe they did, because in the bad old days they they were they did a lot of proprietary stuff, and I think they used maybe some somewhat proprietary memory. But this day and age, the memory that you're using in the Mac, although it has to be a certain type of memory as far as you know some of the parameters, the ECC and, and things like that, it's the same memory that you use in a PC or any other computer. So right. what you want to be, uh, so I'm going to say that there is no such thing as Apple memory. Now there's memory you can buy from Apple, but fortunately you have companies out there that figure this out ahead of time. And, and there's two that I, I think you and I both like, and I'll, I'll, well, I'll mention a whole bunch of options here. Okay. So number one, you want to be sure that you get memory that meets the specifications or the requirements of the machine in question. Yeah. And well, I'm going to, you know, you're probably going to guess that one of those utilities is Mac Tracker. But another is if you want to get the official word from Apple, you can go to support.apple.com slash specs. And for every machine, they're going to indicate the class of memory that you need. And it's usually, you know, PC something dash and then four numbers. And maybe there's an associated bus speed. As long as you match all of those figures, you should be OK. Now, you may not be, though, because, again, as I mentioned, there is. There are some parameters in memory chips where uh, I think parity is one, ECC is another. There's a few others where I think it's possible. It's never happened to me, but it is possible you could get the wrong, even though it matches all of those numbers, you could get the wrong type of memory. So I personally recommend that you go with somebody that understands and knows the Mac and has researched this. And the two companies that I think you and I have both had great success with, Dave, are OWC and uh, or Mac sales and Crucial. Right. Uh, I'm going to tip 
the hat to both of them for different reasons. OWC I like because they will do research above and beyond what Apple does. For example, you and I learned, I think pretty much OWC broke the story or at least publicized that our machine, even though Apple says it can take four gigs, Dave, it can really take six gigs right, and work just fine. So a tip of the hat to them, they know what they're doing. I like Crucial because Crucial has this cool little tool, which I haven't had it work on all of my machines, though most of them, and it's called the System Scanner. And what it's going to do is, you know, it's a small download, you run it, it'll scan your computer, and then tell you how much memory you have installed and what the options are for expanding it. So, right. Now, that's uh, good. now of course, now there are the regular players. There's a, I repeated one here, but you know, you got Mac zone, Mac connection, uh, Mac, uh, I, I've bought Mall, Ram. these guys. And, and you know, as, as long as whoever you buy it from guarantees that, yes, it will work on your Mac, blah, blah, blah. So, well, so all these guys are familiar with the Mac. So I'm going to, I'm going to add a couple of other things here. Sure. Uh, number one is, in addition to the two companies that you mentioned, Crucial and, and OWC, the third that I've bought RAM from in the past and been happy with is Ramjet. For and and again for right. all the same reasons, right? They they offer they they know the Mac, they've known the Mac for a long time. They offer decent memory and and something you didn't mention, but all three of these companies offer, and I think almost every RAM vendor offers these days is a lifetime warranty on the memory. There is no moving parts. There's no reason that this RAM should ever go bad. Uh, and, and in fact, Ramjet honored that at one point. Um, and this was years ago. I had memory from them in my PowerBook G3 uh, codename Pismo machine. And Apple released a firmware update on a Friday afternoon for that machine. Mm-hmm. And I installed the firmware update and it stopped seeing my Ramjet RAM. And it was because something in the firmware update had tightened some tolerance somewhere or another. You know, somebody decided to to make this change and uh, and Ramjet was great about it. I mean, they they were even responding to email over the weekend and said, yep, you know, we'll we'll take care of it. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm sure Crucial and or OWC would have done. I would have the confidence in them to do the same thing. Um, and that's why I'm happy to buy Ram from from all three of those places. But uh, but yeah, make sure they got a lifetime warranty. That's important. Yeah. Mm hmm. Some, uh, I think ODBC did this for me one time. Sometimes they'll have a trade-in program where you can, yeah, you know, yeah, uh, one that. strategy you may want to consider is when you buy a Mac, get it with as little memory as possible. And then a lot of these guys, I did it with those ODBC once as I sent them the old minimum amount of Ram and they gave me a credit towards buying more Ram from them. Yeah. So that, that's nice also. All right. And then, uh, and then we had a Ram question from Kirk and, um, Kirk writes, I think Kirk writes, Kirk wrote, I have a question uh, for my mid 2009 quad core Mac pro. I had the system specced with eight gigs of Ram from the factory. I purchased a four gig stick from eBay uh-oh, to give me a total of 12 gigs of Ram. After installation, the system light on the front would flash repeatedly, which indicates a memory issue. After removing the purchased Ram, the system booted just fine. So my question is, do I need to purchase matched pairs for this system? In my case, I would only need, I would need to purchase two four gig sticks to make a total of 16 total in the system. Uh, The system only supports four Ram slots. So this would be my only other option. After searching the web, I could find nothing that indicated I needed to purchase these in pairs. If that isn't the case, could I have purchased a bad Ram stick? This is kind of funny after the, uh, the last conversation, but, uh, but John, go ahead. Well, I got some bad news. 
Um, <laughs> well, good, somewhat good news, but then bad news. So the good news, and this is where I usually go to get information about matched pairs and, and how many chips are required. Crucial is pretty good about listing this information. So I went to their site, specified the particular Mac in question, and the answer is, if you consider this good news, no, this machine does not require that you have matched pairs. Now, it will benefit from having matched pairs because a lot of machines will do what's known as interleaving. I think that's the the, the most popular term for that. And it'll access the memory faster because it okay. sees it as, I think, one big chip with a wider bus versus two individual chips. So okay. and you can, you can get a small increase of performance. Sure. Here's the bad news, though. Um, yeah, I mean, the flashing power light on, on most Macs means something's wrong with your memory, dude. Right. And... I mean, the only conclusion I can come to is, you know, so either, you well, either it's the wrong answer from the first question. Well, well either it's the oh. wrong type. So I looked this up and it's right. DDR3 PC3 8500 memory. So if that's what you see on the chip or that's what the claim was uh, from the person that sold it to you, uh, then it's a bad chip or you may have the wrong type of memory. Now, a lot of times you can get memory that is, and I think I looked up this model as well, and Crucial said this, you could certainly, in some cases, put slower memory. Okay. So there's probably PC3 dash, you know, less than 8,500. Mm-hmm. Um, probably shouldn't mix it, but, but I think that most systems are able to handle this, so if you have some old crusty memory, you, you could put it in a newer machine, but, but to get the most bang for the buck, you really shouldn't do that. Right. I mean, memory's, memory's cheap. Uh, yeah. Relatively cheap, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. So that that's what I got to say, but I, I think, uh, yeah, it's either the wrong chip or it's a bad chip. So uh, I'm, I'm not sure how you're going to, uh, you know, eBay, if you're going to be able to get a refund from this, this person. Well, if you use PayPal, PayPal's would, you know, usually really good about, about that sort of thing. But, um, you know, that's, uh, yeah, that, that, that's why we buy Ram from reputable people or, uh, reputable vendors or friends. I mean, I've, I've certainly bought and, Traded and given RAM, received RAM from people, and, and that works all right, you know. Yeah, yeah. I told you my recent story, uh, our pal Duffy. I was amazed that my old MacBook Pro chip that I had not traded in yeah. worked in his his wife's iMac. Yeah, my MacBook Pro. It was uh, exactly the same specification chip, which, yep. which was just dumb luck. All, all my machines now, my MacBook Pro and the two iMacs, actually Lisa's MacBook Pro, my MacBook Pro, and our two iMacs all use the same RAM. So it's it's uh, it's handy to be able to swap the stuff around. Uh, all right, so let's do this backwards. You you mentioned Twitter earlier in the show that you communicated with somebody that way. John, what's your Twitter handle? Well, if, if I had to guess, I'd say it's John F. Braun. I think you'd be right. And uh, <laughs> and I think mine is Dave Hamilton. We have Mac Geek Gab for the show. Of course, Pilot Pete. Uh, and he says he'll be back to join us next week. So uh, we shall see. And then uh, Mac Observer for uh, for all the headlines from, from TMO all day long. You can call us at 206-666-GEEK, which for the new uh, and uninitiated John is... Four, three, three, five. And and another way, since we're going backwards, is you can email us, Dave, and because you're listening to this, you are special. So you get a special email address. So normally it's feedback at MacGeekGab.com. No, 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 no. Normally it's feedback at MacGeekGab.com. <laughs> I'll let you get away with that one, but then if you're listening to this, you should. Uh, we'd really like it if you sent it instead to premium at Mac 
MacGeekGab.com. No, now wait a minute. Wait, you're right on that. That's premium <laughs> at MacGeekGab.com. <laughs> Uh, all right. Uh, I'd like to thank, uh, we would like to thank Michael Johnston, who is Michael Johnston on Twitter, uh, and his uh, We Have Communicators podcast, formerly the iPhone Alley podcast. Michael is the one that uh, has converted this to AAC for you, if you're listening to it on AAC. Uh, it is important to note that we do have two feeds for uh, for each show. We have two feeds for the, for the non-premium uh, feed and two feeds for the premium uh, feed. One is MP3 and the other is AAC. If you signed up from within iTunes in, you know, in the iTunes store there, that is going to be the AAC version. Now, the benefit of AAC is you get all of the um, uh, enhanced chapter markers and uh, and links and all of that cool stuff. The downside is that. Well, it takes a little time to do that, and we release the MP3 as soon as the show is released, uh, or as soon as the show is finished. So, essentially, the MP3 is released to that feed the moment we hand the AAC file to Michael for him to begin converting it. And that usually takes about mm, 24, maybe 48 hours. So, if you are jonesing, you can subscribe to the MP3 version and get it just as soon as we push it live. So... Uh, and all those links are available at MacGeekGab.com, both for premium and regular subscribers. Uh, but, of course, all of you are premium subscribers. So. Uh, and then, of course, we want to thank Cashfly for all the, uh, all the bandwidth, because that's a beautiful thing. And with that, I think we're out of here, John. All right. Got any big plans for the weekend, John? Hmm birthday party happy birthday no not me i know someone else in the family (laughs) well have a good time this weekend everyone have a good time and uh don't get caught